Sarah Mason from the HMC Network, and this is Conversations With. And today, we are incredibly fortunate enough to have the President Emerita and Lifetime Trustee of AFI, Jean Picker Furstenberg, at the table with us. Glad to be here. Thank you so much for being here. And Jean is here to talk about her new book, Becoming AFI, 50 Years Inside the American Film Institute, which is coming out on... October 10th from Santa Monica Press. I, I want to start a little bit by talking about your background because you, you you dive into that in the book and you talk about your uh, love for films, which started from, you know, being exposed to it because your father, Eugene Picker, was the president of Lowe's. Yep. My entire family on my dad's side was uh, consumed with uh, uh, the motion picture. Mm. Um, uh, my grandfather uh, was a fascinating gentleman who I never met. Uh, he had uh, he had been in the clothing. He was an immigrant from Poland. He had come over to this country, like many Polish Jews. He went into the uh, uh, garment business. He went bankrupt, mm. and he um, borrowed money from an uncle, and he started building Nickelodeons. In the in the in uh, the true sense of Nickelodeon, in the old okay. old old Great. days of Nickelodeon, yeah. and in um, uh, in the outer boroughs of New York City, not Manhattan, but in Queens and in Brooklyn and the Bronx, mm-hmm. and um, he was very fortunate because Marcus Lowe was starting Lowe's Theaters, and he was looking for real estate throughout the city. And so my grandfather became Marcus Lowe's partner, and wow. his Nickelodeons became the home of the really magnificent Art Deco uh, classic. Yeah, incredible. I mean, are they still around? They even? Are, oh, they are very much around. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> but what's really um, the, the part of the family story that I that um, I love to tell is that when my grandfather was successful. He went back to all the people who um, had lost money through his bankruptcy, mm. and he repaid them with interest. Wow. And he sent them letters um, and paid 150 cents on the dollar to what he owed. And we have the letters that he sent and that he received back from the people who were so surprised to open that envelope. Yeah, that's incredible. And be repaid. So it's it's kind of a family um, legacy that makes me incredibly proud. Mm. Um, but it, it I think it shows character and integrity, um, and also gratitude to this country mm-hmm. for what it allowed him to do. Um, but he also loved the movies, and that's what permeated uh, my childhood going to to the movies. And I there's a part in the book where you talk about how you were more obsessed with story than spectacle. Well, I was the maverick in the family. Yeah, I loved that for, that, <laughs> that, that that was the case. Yeah. Oh, I, I, can I relate. Was, <laughs> there you go. Okay, you were the maverick in your family too. Okay, we're kindred spirits. Yeah. Um, box office consumed my father. Mm. Um, because of course, yeah. he, he had been at college when his dad died. He left and went to work for Lowe's Theaters. 
uh, in a sense, watching over the family mm -hmm. uh, property. And he loved being an exhibitor. He loved the theaters. And he had, he had his sense of character and integrity. And that was when you went to the theaters, you had good sound and projection. Mm -hmm. You had a, a clean theater. You had a, a full concession stand. And the bathrooms were clean. And that's what he was obsessed with. And every weekend, he would go to a different uh, borough on on Saturday, maybe it would be the Bronx, and then Queens on Sunday, and I would go with him. And so I grew up in these movie palaces, watching 10 minutes of a movie, driving 10 minutes to the next theater, watching oh, another wow. 10, 15 minutes. And um, remember, in those days, there were double bills. Oh, right. There were double bills. So it was, it was this childhood that was predicated on story and on uh, grandeur. Um, but I, I, as, as you said, I wasn't interested in box office. I was interested in, in what the story was saying. And, and in a sense, what did that story, how did that story change us? How did that story impact us? And what was the impact on our society and our culture? So mm -hmm. there's not, not much of a, a business uh, a bone in my body. But uh, I, I uh, and in fact, there was the great family uh, lore that my uncle said, if Jeannie likes uh, a movie, it will be a bomb at the box office. <laughs> Is so. that still true? No. <laughs> no, it has nothing you to do with no, Wonder more. Woman. <laughs> <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> and Patty Jenkins, actually, the director of Wonder Woman, did a preface for the book, which is really lovely, and she's an AFI alum. The, I'll tell you, I really think Patty Jenkins is Wonder Woman. Oh, uh, yeah. I think that she's done, uh, given an, an enormous gift, not only to all women, but to all filmmaking. I think she's a, a remarkable human being. Um, talk about character and integrity. She has it. Mm. Um, but she's a great storyteller, and she's going to tell a lot more stories uh, through the rest of her life. Yeah, I can't wait to see what she does next. I want to speak about Wonder how Woman you're a Wonder Woman, Wonder though. Woman 2. Wonder Woman 2, right. <laughs> Well, I, I want to talk about how you're a Wonder Woman because you're – so the things you've done with your career are pretty spectacular and definitely made me feel like the biggest underachiever. <laughs> nonsense, nonsense. Well, you took over the role as CEO at AFI when you were only 43. Right. Which is pretty amazing, I th I thought. And there's a – you say in, in, in the book – that you can't believe you had the audacity to think you could take that leap to that role. and But yet, what you, you had done a lot before. I mean, you were but campaigning. I'd but I'd never run uh, a company. I'd never mm. been responsible for an entity. Uh, yes, I had, I had had a full and wonderful life, but I, had, I hadn't been a vice president, let alone a president. So I, you know, I, it was a leap of faith yeah. uh, when I when I got the job. Uh, but you know, it was a different it was a different time and a different era. This is nineteen eighty. This that you is nineteen eighty. And George Jr. Stevens Jr. I, I think the hardest job is starting something. He was thirty five when he got the job. Yeah, he had uh, he, you know he had great genes too um, because his father was not only a great filmmaker but also a real leader in this mm -hmm. in, in the community out here in Hollywood and and deeply respected by everyone 
George has set his own path of very politically focused when he worked for the Kennedy administration and Edward R. Murrow at uh, the USIA, U.S. Information Office. Mm-hmm. And, he, and George pro- uh, was responsible for producing many, many documentaries that were then shown around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, USIA documentaries were not shown in the United States. But uh, so he was—he he was on the path to being a great uh, filmmaker, uh, brilliant writer. Um, and had uh, he been a CEO before? No. Well, okay. So, so, so there <laughs> he was had some... the audacity. Why should you have the audacity? <laughs> that, well, that's exactly right, and I think that um, AFI was very fortunate to have had him as our founding director, and and I was very fortunate to get the job. I thought the job was in Washington, D.C., because AFI, it, it's really important to understand that AFI was, was literally created in the Rose Garden of the White House. Wow. That By Johnson. L- Lyndon Baines Johnson signs uh, the Great Society legislation that creates the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities. And he says, in the Rose Garden, we will create an American Film Institute that will help preserve the history of American film, and train the next generation mm-hmm. of storytellers. Uh, the National Endowment is created. They have a study, a Stanford Institute study, what should the AFI be? Two years later, George is, sit- is appointed. The, uh, at that time, the title was director and CEO. Uh, Gregory Peck, the great Gregory Peck, mm-hmm. uh, was, was his chair, and the great Cindy Poitier was his vice chair. Hmm. That's a a nice group of people to have at the table. Yeah. One of the things that, now this is 1980 that you took over. Right. 12 years later, I took over. And what was interesting to hear about, because you talk about, you know, you're, you're coming in to this role at a time where arts and art funding is on the chopping block, because it's the beginning of the Reagan era. Yes, Ronald Reagan ran on a um, on a platform of eliminate the National Endowment of the Arts, eliminate the National Endowment of the Humanities, and it was really a hue and cry of his, as it has been for many Republican presidential candidates mm-hmm. uh, then and ever since. Um, this is a great story about what Ronald Reagan did because you can't believe the pressure that was that was felt by the endowments mm. at that time. So I I just love this. So Reagan appoints three people to set up a task force to study should the endowments Mm -hmm. continue. And who does he appoint as chairs of that? Hannah Gray, who was a very respected academic who at that time was president of the University of Chicago. Charlton Heston, his Mm -hmm. friend from Hollywood, from California. They both had been presidents of the Screen Actors Guild, Mm -hmm. so they knew each other very well. And Chuck had campaign for uh, President Reagan. Um, Chuck Heston at the time was chairman of the American Film Institute. Mm-hmm. He, uh, and, 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 and I'll come back to Chuck in a second, but the third chair was Reagan's campaign, uh, I'm sorry, finance chair, the man who raised the most money for him, a gentleman from Chicago by the name of Daniel Terror, who loved the arts. Mm who had a huge art collection, who Reagan went on to appoint, uh, for the first time, an ambassador for cultural affairs 
It is the only time in our history we had an ambassador for cultural affairs. Mm. So here you had Hagrey, who loves academia and the humanities. You have Chuck Heston, who loves, loves filmmaking mm -hmm. and the American Film Institute. And you had Daniel Terror, who, who loved the arts. Guess what? The endowment survived. Yeah. <laughs> I, it's so ironic. So I don't know whether Reagan really didn't care, uh, but it was just it was just campaign rhetoric. But we worked really hard, and that task force uh, kept the endowments moving forward. Well, and and it was not until Clinton that the NEA was cut by forty percent, correct? Which is kind yeah, of, yeah, it is, it's, it's so ironic. But there were many, many episodes over the years. It was always in danger. It's in danger now. Yeah, you know, of I course. mean, and, yeah. and but just think about it. Think about it. It's I don't think there has ever been over $200 million in a year in either endowment. It is pittance, but mm. it is so important because it gives an authenticity and a, um, well, to use a very mundane phrase, the, the good housekeeping seal. Mm -hmm. If you get a grant from the NEA or the NEH, that means you're doing good work. Right. And so it's really important for arts and, and for academia to have these symbols of respect and recognition of the quality and character of the work you're doing. Absolutely. Talk a little bit about how you took you had to transition what was AFI's kind of dependency on NEA and, and that's where your funding came from to being a self-sustaining. Yeah, you know, that, that's really the story of these 50 years because for 30 years we were, we were one of the largest grantees of the National Endowment for the Arts, mm. year in and year out. And, um, and therefore that caused a lot of displeasure and, you know, when you're, when you're getting the most, right. you're going to be a target. And it's, un it's understandable because people were... You know, they were trying to, to, to survive. They were trying to create institutions. They were doing good work, you know, and here this, you know, big American film institute mm -hmm. is getting such a, um, a large sum of money. But we were doing a lot of work in preservation, mm -hmm. uh, passed through funds that went to all of the archives around around America who, who did the grunt work and really are, you know, our heroes. Uh, we gave out a lot of independent filmmaker grants uh, one of the first uh, went to Barbara Koppel. Hmm. She made Harlan County, USA. Mm. Um, but what happened uh, over, so for 30 years, we, we got these large sums, and then the endowment was cut back so severely. Um, the saddest part of all was that the um, um, all, all, all of those who were doing the grunt work in preservation, all the archives were eliminated in their support. And we fought with the NAA and said, don't do that. You mustn't do that. But they stopped funding them. Explain what that means exactly. It, so in terms of all the archives. Well, there, there are five or six major archives in America that basically have been responsible in large measure, measure for ensuring that film history and film preservation has, has, uh, has, has, that you can go and see a film that has been saved and preserved. The Library of Congress is, is the largest mm -hmm. and just a remarkable institution. But UCLA, 
UCLA out here, Museum of Modern Art in New York, George Eastman House in, in Rochester. Mm -hmm. These are the main archives uh, in, in America. Mm -hmm. there, a very important thing has happened to those archives, and uh, I, I, as much as I can, in talking about this book, I want to talk about David Woodley Packard, Jr., because he really is Mr. Preservation now. He mm -hmm. has taken over for the archives, and he had he built uh, the Culpeper facility for the Library of Congress in Virginia. He he bought the facility from the government, and he built it. He has built the archive out in Santa Clarita, California, where the UCLA collection is. And if we if it weren't for David Woodley Packard, you know, film preservation would not be in the the relatively reasonable state it is in. It is really unfortunate. Hmm. that the copyright holders did not recognize and appreciate and respect what the work that they financed really meant to our society and our culture. They only saw it as a business. Mm -hmm. They only saw it as, well, can it make more money at the box office? Right. So once once they thought the run first run was over, they had no imagination. They had no vision about what they were creating. Hmm. And just to jump back for a second... That was the other major issue that the AFI, I think, really fought for, the concept of moving images as an art form. Mm -hmm. Because in 1967, when AFI was created, film was not thought of as art right. and because it was commercially so successful. Right. So how could it be art if it, was, it was, if it was a commercial venture? And it took a lot of years, but I think I think today we really understand, you know, the filmmakers of today, they are creating art. Now, is it all yeah. great art? Is it all, uh, you know, unique art? No. But in its finest, it is really superb. Let me, let me uh, just interject something since you mentioned today. <laughs> How do you, because obviously, I mean, in the years that you were at AFI, you saw technology change dramatically in terms of what filmmakers could do. Um, and, you know, we have people making films on their iPhone now. We have people, you, content distribu distribution has changed dramatically. The way people are seeing and receiving content has changed. Has that changed the perception of art? Are we, st are we in a danger zone in terms of having to remind people that it's art? Do you, how no, do you it's, 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 it's the correct question to ask. Where are we? Mm -hmm. um, and you know what? We don't know where we are mm. because we are in a moment of change, total, complete, and absolute change. And it's thrilling and terrifying all at the same time. I sat there and watched it and couldn't believe it as it was happening when I went back and read all the things I had written and talked about. I was shocked because mm -hmm. I, all I did was talk about technology, and I never realized mm -hmm. that um, I knew it was happening, but it was so hard to comprehend. Mm -hmm. So everything changes, right? Everything changes. And now we've gone from nitrate, which is going to explode, to cellular, which we're trying to save, to right. all of a sudden digital. Yeah, yeah. Is it an art form? At its finest, it will always be an art mm. form. But our perceptions of it, how we relate to it, everything is different. Mm -hmm. And we're going to have to redefine and 
begin to comprehend over the as in the next ten years. I mean, what's terrifying? The next ten years could have more change than we've had in the last twenty years. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, you you're a student of where this is going. Maybe you can help us figure this out. I'm trying. I I mean, I'm dealing with virtual reality stuff now. You know, I mean, and we all are. I mean, that's sort of. But it, it is. It, it's been interesting. To, from my perspective, when I was in film school, uh, just working on Super 8 film. <laughs> Think about that. Think about that. That's so wonderful. That was just in the early 90s, you know. So it wasn't it's, – it's – but, but think of when I came to the AFI in 1980 – what did I talk about? I talked about the fact that my children weren't going to see American film history the way I had right? because you could only see it in museums. Mm-hmm. There, there was no videotape. Well, you know, now we have YouTube and people can see everything. You can see everything. Yeah. And what are we fighting about? Well, you know, if it's in the theater, then you can't see it for – for 30, 30 days and then another 30 days. I mean, <laughs> yeah, know, things are changing. Oh, it's things true. Things are changing. I, I, absolutely. I want to jump back a little bit in terms of when you started uh, and just also talk about your foundation for what got you there and what your approach to it. So there you are. It's 1980. Just got out of a big heated presidential campaign. You're dealing with all these different factors in terms of there's still the Cold War going on. Uh, the miracle on ice happens, which I remember vividly as a child, too. And uh, Michael Ruzioni went to BU where I went and you went. Right, yeah. right, right. And good, good for you for remembering Oh, that. yeah. I was, he was a big deal. That was my first, the first Olympics I remember really being That's aware of and glued to. Uh, but well, remember, I started January 1st, 1980, so the election was just coming around the bend. Okay. Okay. But um, it was such a different era. And I think that the job is in Washington, D.C., because that's where our funding came from. Right. Aren't you smart to have your headquarters there? So no one told you that you were interviewing for a job in L.A.? Well, I know, and you no. talk about this in the book, and it's great, that you heard that George Stevens Jr. was retiring, I, I and read you wanted the, that job. <laughs> you're absolutely right. I read in the New York Times, uh, I think it was uh, a Saturday uh, in June 1979, that he was retiring, and they were going to start a search for his successor. I had met George during the Kennedy years um, when I had lived there briefly, and I had had worked for him for a few weeks, helping him set up the American delegation to the Moscow Film Festival. Um, I, I also knew uh, a good bit about the American Film Institute because my uncle, uh, my father's youngest brother, was a founding trustee. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother at that time was uh, uh, running a studio in in Los Angeles, and he was uh, on the board. Uh, and his then wife had been a member of the directing workshop for women. Um, and I had been at the uh, Markle Foundation, and we had funded the directing workshop mm-hmm. for women, which is a passion of mine. Um, I forgot the question. <laughs> uh, just, uh, I wanted to sort of understand when you came in, what what was Got your it. game plan? Like okay. what? Okay. Wh- 
So, um, so now I arrive, and and the job is in Washington D.C. Uh, as you said, I've never run anything, and I'm trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, so, three weeks into the job, I come out to Los Angeles to meet the folks at the Center for Advanced Film Studies, this magnificent mansion in Beverly Hills. And they say to me, we're losing our lease here at the Doheny Mansion. What are you going to do about it? Hmm. And I look at them and I say, "Uh, tell me a little bit more. (laughs) Uh, George had made this incredible deal with the city of Beverly Hills, 10 years at a dollar a year. You can't do much much better than that. that story. Wow. (laughs) And uh, the 10 years was up. And uh, the city had decided that this was too good a deal and they wanted to charge $15,000 a month. Mm -hmm. Uh, Still a very reasonable amount, but the the center had really grown and it it, it needed uh, more space and it needed to breathe. Uh, But I didn't have a clue and I didn't know Los Angeles. So the the board had had a uh, search committee looking for a new location, but they hadn't come up with anything. So after my first visit out here, I, I came back about a month later, and I said, let's look around. And somebody said that they wanted to show me a site about uh, seven miles east of where where we were situated. They had heard that Immaculate Heart College was uh, going out of business, and they were going to sell their campus. So remember, I'm a New Yorker. Um, uh, I've lived in Washington. I went to school, as you did, in Boston. I consider boss wash my card or, you know, I'm not going to live anyplace else, right? Right, right, yeah. (laughs) And um, uh, they they drive me over to this campus on this hill, uh, and I, I walk around, and I go up to the top of the hill, and I can see the Pacific Ocean. It's gorgeous. Mm. It's gorgeous. And, you know, I look down at uh, downtown L.A., which is a lot bigger today than it was then. Mm -hmm. And um, I see a stadium and lights and I say, what's that? And they say, oh, that's Dodger Stadium. Uh Aha, the plot thickens. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, of course, I, you know, I cried when the Dodgers left New York and came to Los Angeles. But I say, oh, I can see Dodger Stadium. But I, I've said, you know, this is look, look at this. This is a gorgeous place. This can work. Mm. What I didn't realize was that that ocean that I was looking at, you can only see a couple of days a year <laughs> because Especially of the Especially in 1980, yeah. yeah, no, it, yeah. it was really, really bad. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the, the next six months were an absolute blur because... Uh, we, we changed the course of the history of the American Film Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, not knowing any better, we set out to purchase Immaculate Heart College. We raised enough money. Uh, the board agreed t- to go forward with a, an offer. The offer was accepted. And on uh, August 29th, I walked down the hill at that um, site and with Chuck Heston and Steve Brody, a, a great humanitarian uh, who helped raise much of the money, mm-hmm. and we announced that we were acquiring Immaculate Heart College. And this was your first. This was my win first as, as well, CEO, it, really. But you can say that again. I mean, <laughs> you know, in in the first 
nine months of of uh, being in office, as it were, we had changed the course mm-hmm. of the history of the Institute. And, you know, in some ways, you know that at the time. But when you look back, mm-hmm. you realize it gave us a permanence. It gave us, um, you know, real estate is a wonderful thing. Mm. Real estate means you have a home. Right. And for an, a, an academic institution, mm-hmm. for a cultural institution, where more often than not, you know, you're borrowing space until, right. you, you know, you can put your own uh, name on a, on a landmark. This this was a big deal in the history of AFI. I think it's a big deal for students, too. I'm sure a, a, more alums talk about that. Well, that's that, a really interesting story. The the folks at Greystone loved it. They had oh, they this, loved it there. They loved okay. it there. Well, they it's had beautiful. this mansion. Yeah. You know, they. But also, it was a different era. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, can you imagine how hard it was to start an academic institution in 1969? Mm, yeah, no. I mean, this the country was erupting. Yeah. So. Talk about um, organized chaos. I don't think it was organized. Mm-hmm. It was imaginative and creative. Mm-hmm. And these, you know, men and women just went and, and, and made their movies. Wow. It was a different, different, different era. So by 1980, you know, the lore of, of um, Doheny was strong. And they were saying, oh, we have to leave here mm. and, and go, go. It goes, you know, seven miles away. Uh, it was a difficult transition. It was a, you see, that's why we didn't know in 1980 how, you know, what, why this really was what it, you know, um, what it came to be. Right. Um, and it took a number of years to adjust and reconfigure the environment so that it worked. Mm-hmm. But when you buy a campus that's already been there and had years and years of of um, relationships to first it was a all woman's college mm-hmm. and then it became a co-ed college for really special students men and women who went back to college mm-hmm. uh, that order of nuns was a beautiful group mm-hmm. of people a beautiful group of people. so I really thought of it as this hallowed Land, wow! You know, yeah, and, and very meaningful. But um, the, the the environment that you create, the culture that you create, and that's what changed my life because I realized that I couldn't sit in the Kennedy Center in Washington D.C. and create the culture that I wanted to create and hoped for, um, and so I had to move mm-hmm. to California. Something, as we said before. You know, we're not going to Yeah, And yeah, here yeah. we both are. What's going on here? I don't know. <laughs> I keep saying I'm going back. Sorry, Mom. <laughs> Do, how was it as a woman to be taking on that role? Because at the time, there weren't a lot of women. C- I mean, we still don't have tons of women CEOs. There's a lot more now. But at, in 1980, you were a pioneer. I, I didn't realize until I really looked back and, and wrote this book how, that I was a pioneer. Mm. Um, and cultural institutions, academic, the academic world, the nonprofit world is a great place for women. Mm. We, have, we have a much better shot at it there. Faye Kanan, 
was uh, became president of, of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences in 1979. She was on the AFI board. She was on the search committee. And I'll never forget at those interviews, sitting there and seeing Faye, the only woman at the table, mm. and you looked uh, looked at each other eye to eye, and I knew I had a friend there. That's great. And the first year, so I start January 1st. The Oscars at that time were in late March. I asked Faye, because I didn't understand how hard it was to get those tickets. And I said, <laughs> Faye, could I go to the Academy Awards? And, and she, she, she became a great friend and a very beautiful. Did you go? Well, there was this pause. <laughs> and then she said, I think the director and CEO of the American Film Institute should go to the Absolutely. Year. And so every year I, you know, I went to the Academy Awards through the generosity of the, the president of the Academy hmm. and um, very grateful to be included in that family. That's wonderful. So what, what okay, so you've got the new campus. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to hear a little bit about, because you talk later in the book about how from 95 to 2005, you really kind of took it to the next stage. Yep. And I want to hear a little bit about, and par, a lot of that was the whole getting, you know, uh, independent from the NEA. Right. What was that path to get there? It was a very interesting path. Um, and it's really helpful to, to have this perspective of time. Um, to be able to look back and say, ah, oh, that's what happened. Because mm-hmm. when you're living through it, yeah, you, you, yeah, know, you don't, it, have, you don't yeah. have that perspective at all. Um, remember, we had been one of these largest grantees from the NAA for 30 years. The board had spent a great deal of time working with the NEA, uh, involved politically uh, to maintain our grants. Um and it was really hard for the board to think that could we survive mm-hmm. without government support. I had started to think about it uh, in 1990 very, very seriously because I did not think we could sustain it that much longer, mm-hmm. that it was not a healthy way to be fighting for your grant every year, not mm-hmm. knowing whether you right. had the money or not. And I really felt that the Institute had begun, had was finally seeing itself as a self-sustaining, strong, independent entity. The issue was, could we financially mm-hmm. uh, find a path that would allow us to be self-sustaining? And we had um, invited some board members from other parts of the country who who really felt the power of the motion picture and mm-hmm. really believed that an American Film Institute had a role in the life of, of the country. Mm-hmm. And they urged us to think of ourselves um, much more nationally and also to, with the 100th anniversary of the motion picture, to find a way to really send out that clarion call. This is about American film. You know, it, it's, a, it's 100 years old. Let's recognize it, respect it, appreciate it, and show our affection for it. And so what really happened was um, 
the evolution. We put together a uh, entrepreneurial board advisory committee. We met with them continually and said, you know, how do we own the 100th anniversary? We have some ideas. And out of those meetings and those ideas came AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, which... I was there for that. I And that, it's... Inc- I... Just reading the book, I was reminded how I was there when that – Isn't seat, that exciting? Yes, and it was really an exciting time to be there. It was, a, it was exciting and we rolled the dice mm-hmm. because it was the first time we had and, – and the board was extraordinary and instrumental in the success that we had because it was the first time that we had to take a chance – we had to borrow funds to mm-hmm. put that production together. We had to roll the dice. Mm-hmm. Could we make it profitable? These are the kinds of decisions that CEOs of corporations make every day. Right. They make value judgments. Can we make money on this new project? Sometimes they win. Sometimes they lose. If we had lost, we were finished. We were yeah. done. We were over. So they were very worried about Dare we do this? Uh-huh. Dare we do this? Oh, they were magnificent. They were, and Fred Pierce, God bless him, he ran ABC television. Yeah, I, he, I, I had interviewed with him once. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. He, he put us on his back and he carried us through. And it was unbelievably exciting, terrifying, and successful. Mm-hmm. And basically was the reason that when we... You know, when when the federal funds were gone, we had replaced them with 100th anniversary, 100 years, 100 mm-hmm. movies, 11 years. We were on CBS, thanks to Les Moonves right? and, yeah. you know, an incredible production team. And um, it, 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 it changed AFI's world. So did you have to, when you say that they were terrified about rolling the dice, and the way you talk about it, it sounds really more like a corporation, like an entrepreneurial kind of decision. Did you have to switch gears in a way, from, or did you have Completely. to balance those two? Well, you had to think differently. You're absolutely right. You had to think very, uh, um, what how do we do a project that maintains the character and quality of the institution we're representing that also can provide a revenue stream that allows yeah. us to do the work that we believe is worth doing? Uh, and you're always balancing this, you know, issue of is this, um, does this represent what the AFI stands mm-hmm. for? Um, and that's always in the back of your mind and that's always at the forefront of whatever you're doing and when you fall short of that um it's not a good day Mm. it's not a good day uh, do you feel that you ever felt fell short of that um not very often Mm. i mean i'm really proud to say that but you had to really think about it a lot um I worked with some fantastic people. Mm. Um, I, uh, my colleagues were really, really brilliant. And the board, I have to say, was magnificent. Because think of it. We had the heads of all the studios, the heads of all the networks, some of the best, greatest filmmakers in the world, academics who, 
who said, you're doing the right thing. This is, this is mm-hmm. the validation of why you exist. And so somehow or other, you find a way that says, this feels like we are representing the artists who came before us mm-hmm. and allowing and putting them in a context that um, shows the world as well as this country how important these movies have been in the course mm-hmm. of our history. And um, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is very exciting. I, you talk about the board members. I mean, I don't know if you can mention any of the footwork. Let's do. Let's just do a list off of the alums and board and some folks that have come out of AFI because it's it's worth noting. Well, as I, as I say, I think the re- the story of the conservatory is really David Lynch. Yeah. you know who is a true, true, true artist to Patty Jenkins, and you, you can't say more about either one of them and 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 all the others in between. I have a chapter in the book that I devote to the board leadership, and there's no, I mean, I was privileged to, um, to get to know Gregory Peck, who, by the way, celebrated his hundredth and uh, his hundredth birthday um, uh, in September, and uh, there wasn't a classier human being mm. in the world. Uh, Roger Stevens, no, no uh, relation to George Stevens, was the second chair. He was head of the National Endowment for the Arts. Mm-hmm. He was chair of the AFI for a couple of years, and then he set up the uh, um, the J- uh, John F. Kennedy Center for the Performing Arts. One of the he was a, a Broadway producer, one of the true great uh, cultural institutional builders in American history, and then Chuck Heston. Um, and and it's really wonderful to think about Chuck Heston, a Republican, and Gregory yeah. Peck, a Democrat. Yeah. And um, in 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 the truly, truly remarkable forward to the book, Dana Joya, who ran the NEA from 203 to 209 and who is now uh, and who is a poet and who is now poet laureate of the state of California, wrote He's a real rem- renaissance man is really. Oh. Who he is. <laughs> and you, you talk head about of GE, a GE, you know, at one yeah, point. No, well, yeah. well, he wasn't head of GE, or, but I he mean, worked. Yeah, yeah General but, Foods, General Foods. Yeah. But, but a, a true true genius and 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 i urge everyone to read his forward because it really explains the value of the endowments and the value of national institutions and how the nea and the neh were created at a time when our country uh, our country parties the democrats and the republicans worked together and created these things through compromise and through the willingness to uh, respect each other in a way that unfortunately we don't have very much of today, but it's, um, you think um, we'll get back to that. Are you hopeful we'll get back to it in, in the context of AFI and the things that really matter in terms of, you know, that's, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. I think that we we're we're in a difficult, difficult period. It's this change in, in how we communicate, the change in technologies, and uh, what has put everybody into corners and not being able to come together mm. and work work together. I think the greatest thing that we could do is to come to the center yeah, and, and find ways to compromise and to uh, respect each other the way Greg Peck and Charlton Heston did over the course of their lifetimes. Uh, to, to 
be the standard bearers of this community and not only respect the Hollywood world, but the independent world mm-hmm. and the avant-garde world and all of all of the incredible talent across this country and across the world mm. that um, simply wants to, to have the great freedoms we have in this country for artistic expression. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I, I do, do think times change and sometimes you have to get to the lowest point on the on the uh, level so that you can come back right and um and find some some middle ground yeah let's hope we do uh, one of the things you also talk about uh, are all the the things that happened in terms of the independence from the na and what you guys put in place the scholarships the sponsorships the laa um, Life Achievement Award, which w- is really a marvel uh, to attend. I was very lucky to get to go to it a couple times, and actually since I've been at AFI. And there's some great anecdotes. One of my favorite anecdotes in the book is about Sean Connery. <laughs> yeah. And uh, – <laughs> Well, again, again, you have to give George uh, incredible credit um, because he's he's a brilliant brilliant man and he 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 had the concept for a life achievement award uh he pulled it off brilliantly and the measure of his success is that it's still going and it's going because it um it shows the respect and affection and regard for these artists and each year you know, we throw a spotlight on somebody and their contributions. This year was Diane Keaton. And I'll tell you, it was, they're all different because they're all about a different artist. And um, Diane Keaton was just extraordinary because everybody who she worked with came back to tell her that they loved her. Mm. You know, and Sean Connery didn't know much about the uh, Life Achievement Award, and he had the best time. And he's such a character. Yeah. Uh, and and he and Sir Howard Stringer, who's been our chair since uh, t- two thousand, are really good buddies. And you know, that's the those are the kicks of the of uh, of uh, 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 the job. Um, you can't feel sorry for me when I can go to dinner with Sean Connery. No, not at all. And, and Sir Howard Stringer and let them tell stories because they're funny. Yeah. And they're, you know, and, and that's um, sort of like inside baseball. Um, but, you know, uh, I enjoyed every moment of, of, of that. But I also, I, I also want to stress as much as I can how much the board and the leaders of the board gave back. Hmm. You know, these are men and women uh, deeply uh, involved in the worlds that they're creating, many of them business people who gave their time and energy Mm -hmm. um, for something else, to contribute to something else. And um, I just had a communication back and forth with Donald Sutherland, who wrote me in 1982 and said, He's Canadian, and he was moving from Canada to, to Los Angeles. And he said, you know, I'm moving to Los, to Los Angeles. I'd like to get involved with the AFI. Could I come in and meet you? And we met. He wanted to learn everything about the AFI. Uh, we, we still had our offices in, in um, 
in Washington, D.C. He went to Washington and he said, Jeannie, I had no idea what the AFI did. And for six years, he was always there for us. Mm -hmm. He was always there for us. When, when I said, could you come to this event? Of course I'll come to mm -hmm. this event. Could you fly to Washington to meet with the NEA? Of course I'll fly to Washington to meet with the NEA. And I wrote him because the Academy is giving him an honorary Oscar on November 11th. Now, isn't that cool? Yes. You know, and I, and I said, what a lovely thing. I'm glad and, he's getting that, too. Yeah, what a career. Yeah. Um, and he's, he's working dramatically now. Uh, he, he wrote me about, um, he, he's, he's playing J. Paul Getty for Danny Boyle. So, oh, wow. he, you know, he works all the time. Yeah, he does. He's in lots. He's in a lot he's of stuff. He's in a yeah. lot of, of television and, and film. And isn't that great? Yes. You know, isn't that yeah. great? But, you know, what comes around goes around. I really think when, when you give the way of, the Donald Sutherlands of the world have given, you get something back. Yeah. And that's what the Academy is doing Good for, for them. Yeah, isn't that great? Why do you think that is that it, it, AFI is so beloved? It, it, well, I, I think you're prejudiced, but I'll, I'll buy <laughs> no, it. No, but let me qualify that by saying this. Over the years, but while I was there at AFI and post, whenever I would bring up AFI in Los Angeles, the name has instant recognition not just in Los Angeles, and instantly a credibility about it. I mean, I can tell you that on my resume, it's been one of the greatest things. Well, I'm so glad. Well, no, seriously, but also, and I have very fond uh, memories of my days there, and I'm still friends with all of the people I worked with there, and some of my closest friends are people I, I met at AFI. But I've noticed that over the years, that there's something... I, and you can tell me if you think – I'm sure you're too modest to take credit for it, but is that you're doing? Is it – what is it that people feel like protective of it but also like, oh, AFI, of course I'll do anything for you guys? Well, I mean it's very kind of what you're saying is very, very kind and I, I'd like to believe it's true. But it, the, these are it, – it's, it's not so easy. I think that you try to create a – an environment and a culture. And someone brilliant um, once said, culture eats strategy for lunch every day. Mm. And I really think um, that the culture of, of, of um, an entity, the, um, what you try to create at a university or a college or, or a campus um, is very reflective of, of the people at the institution. You're only as strong as your weakest link. Mm -hmm. And you really have to be sure that everybody appreciates and respects what, you, what collectively we're trying to do. And, you know, that's what I, I try to create there. Uh, some, some days are good and some days aren't mm. so good. Uh, but that's human nature. But I think that... Um, I think that, you know, from George Stevens to myself to Bob Ghazali, we, we all care deeply about the men and women who've graced our world with their stories. And, you know, that respect is what we established as our 
raison d'etre, mm. you know, and um, you ask everybody to go on this ride with you, right. you know, and I know that George and I and Bob, you know, w- w- we worked, we made it clear that we were going to be the hardest working people at the AFI because you can't ask people to work hard if you're not out there yourself. I can absolutely say with 100 <laughs> uh, percent, you worked harder than anybody. But, I, but so, but, but so did you're George. an amazing role, role model. Well, so did George and, and so does Bob. And, um, and that just comes with the territory. And I really think that, you know, institutions have, to, you know, that standard has to be set by by the person at the head of the line because otherwise it doesn't work. Right. Otherwise it doesn't work. Um, I'll tell you, I was down at, at USC at Dana Joya's class uh, thanking him for for the incredible forward he wrote. And I haven't been, been down to USC in a long time. No, no wonder everyone who goes to USC loves it. It's magnificent. Yeah. That campus, what they have done, as Dana was saying, they've, you know, it's, it's, totally different than it was 30 years ago and that's you know that's another really really good point you have to grow institutionally you have to continually grow or you atrophy Mm. you have to grow with the times with with the the changing world and you know i think that you asked me you know what where are we we're in the middle of change Mm -hmm. And institutionally, you have to change with that. And, you know, that's that's a constant challenge. But, uh, you know, I, I, w- I was um, I w- it was exciting to write this book, to look back and see, wow, what what's it been? The, what are these 50 years? What were these 50 years like? And uh, to see what had happened hmm. what's going to be exciting is to see what's the next you know i i'm i retired 10 years ago i know i can't believe that actually it's already been that i'm yeah. the happiest retired person yeah. you know <laughs> i've told you that before but it's true because the, the, the world is changing so much you really have to have um much younger people sitting at the helm because they are part of that change, mm-hmm. and um, you know that that's true for anybody. Right. But I'm I'm feel very uh, very fortunate that Bob Ghazali was selected by the board. Uh, he's a brilliant, brilliant young man, or he used to be young. Now he's been there ten I, years. I when I was at AFI, Bob was working in New York. Oh, and I thought he go. was one of the funniest people I'd ever met in my life. He would come to L.A. every once in a while, to, and, and he would just make me laugh till I busted. He's brilliant. Uh, he's so he's, funny. You know, he, he, is one of the, uh, he has one of the best sense of humors. He's absolutely brilliant. Uh, he, like George, he's a brilliant writer and producer. Uh, he's completely dedicated to... Uh, what the AFI stands for, and he's really taken the AFI into the 21st century. Uh, he's done a, a magnificent job, um, but it's not an easy job. It wasn't easy for yeah. George, it wasn't easy for me, and it isn't easy for Bob. That goes with with the territory. But, you know, I think, you know, Lyndon Johnson said, we will create an American Film Institute. Mm-hmm. And um, I think... 
uh, I feel really good about uh, what the Institute did. Well, let me ask you this sort of as a, a final question. What do you think your legacy is? Well, I, we're celebrating 50 years. Mm-hmm. That's the legacy. And the future is uh, what will the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years bring? 2017, you know, it's really interesting. Um, 60 Minutes is 50 years old in 2017. Meet the Press is 50 years old in 2017. A lot of things happened in the 60s in this country. As you look back, I mean, it was a time of internal turmoil. Mm. Uh, It was a time of intense uh, creativity. And, uh, you know, I think that we can take hope from an American Film Institute that was born in the Rose Garden and now stands on its own two feet Mm -hmm. to celebrate, Mm -hmm. you know, the men and women who keep telling stories and who, no matter what the delivery system, will be there to help us through good times and bad times because uh, the way we communicate is through story. That's a perfect place to end it. Jean Picker-Furstenberg, thank you so much for being here. Becoming AFI 50 Years Inside the American Film Institute will be available October 10th. You can pre-order it on Amazon right now. And uh, please visit our website, thehmcnetwork.com, for more interviews and more about Jean's book. Thanks so much. Oh, 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 oh,